So we're beginning a new series in the book of 2 Corinthians today, and uh, today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that's at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that, by, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Well, despite all the scientific progress that's been made in our world, there are a lot of things in our world that are still mysteries. And uh, I was looking through, uh, through the internet and trying to find some of the biggest mysteries, biggest mysterious things that have ever happened, and I found some really interesting ones. Um, so years ago, 1908, there was this ginormous explosion in an area of Russia uh, called the Potokamenia Tunguska River. And this huge explosion, it decimated about 2,000 square kilometers of, of land. It was, wasn't very uh, heavily populated, only killed about three people. But it was about 2,000 square kilometers that was completely destroyed. Now, this is before the atomic bomb. This is before weapons that could get anywhere close to that kind of explosion. And to this day, nobody knows how this explosion happened. It just decimated thousands of and thousands of kilometers of space. Another mystery I found, uh, there was this device that was found called the Antikythera mechanism. And uh, what that was, was it was basically like the first computer. It was dated to 87 BC, and it ha had all these levers and mechanisms, and it was basically like a computing machine, simplified computing machine, where uh, whoever made it, they wanted to be able to kind of predict the uh, movement of the stars, and so they made it so that if you adjusted a certain way, you could predict the movement of the stars. Now, the thing that was mysterious about this was nobody had ever created anything close to this during that time frame. And so nobody knows who created it or why there's only one of, these, of this particular device and how they got that kind of technology back then. Another mystery, 1518, there was a plague that uh, went through, I think it was Germany. It was called the Dancing Plague, or in France. And this Dancing Plague started when uh, this woman just started dancing in the streets uncontrollably, and about 400 people joined her. And they just kept dancing and dancing and dancing. They wouldn't sleep, they wouldn't eat. People were just dropping, dropping over with heart attacks and, and just passing out. 
and it went on for several days, and it was never replicated anywhere else in the world, and nobody knows how this dancing uh, plague started. Uh, the Greek philosopher Plato described a place called Atlantis. You've probably heard of that from movies. Uh, Atlantis, he says, was this place that was kind of the center point, the high point of civilization. Uh, the people who lived there were beautiful. They had a, a great industrial complex. There was a temple to Poseidon. It was just a great place to live. The only problem, the mystery, was nobody's ever found Atlantis. Nobody has any uh, evidence that that place even existed. Final one, in uh, Hesdalen, Norway, uh, starting in the 1940s, people have said they've seen lights uh, over, the, over the horizon. They're green, yellow lights, and uh, thousands and thousands of people have seen these lights, and nobody has ever found the source of these lights. There's a lot of mysteries in this world, things that just kind of make you scratch your head, things that nobody has any explanation for. And, and one of the mysteries that humanity has often struggled with is the mystery of if God is good, if God is all-powerful, then why does he allow bad things to happen? Now, as believers, we have an answer for that. We know that as, uh, as sin entered the world, so death and suffering came into the world. And so uh, for that big question, we have an answer that it's because of sin. Sin brought suffering into the world. And as Christians, most of us are okay with that answer. Like we're okay with that. That satisfies what it needs to satisfy in our hearts as a general kind of answer to suffering. But what's more difficult is for us when, is when we experience suffering ourselves. You know, and we, we get, have something happen to us we don't want to happen, or our loved one has something happen to them, and then we wonder, so, okay, I get that sin brought suffering into the world, but I'm a believer in Christ. I've repented of my sin. I'm following after him with all my heart. I'm doing everything I can to follow after him, I'd I do anything for Christ, so why is he allowing me to suffer like that? It's a much more personal question. We might be okay with the general cosmic answer of why suffering happens, but when it happens to us or other people who we know are believers who are trying to do the right things, we wonder, God, why do you allow this to happen? Peter Kraft, a philosopher, put it this way, the answer to suffering cannot be an abstract idea. Because this isn't an abstract issue, it's a personal issue. It requires a personal response. It's not just a bunch of, of words, it's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument, it's a person, the person. The answer must be someone, not just someone, because the issue involves someone. God, where are you? Sometimes we wrestle with that question, God, why do you allow your children to suffer? People who are doing the right things, following after you. This was a struggle that the Corinthians had as well. In fact, many of the Corinthians had previously rejected Paul. Some even, as 2 Corinthians has written, some still are rejecting Paul. And one of the reasons they rejected him was because he suffered so much. And in their mind, they thought, if he's really of God, if the Spirit of God is within him, there's no way God would allow him to suffer like he suffered. I mean, he went through beatings and imprisonments and shipwreck and all different sorts of anguish, both mental and physical. And so they're, in their minds, if, if he was of God, he wouldn't, God wouldn't allow that to happen. Paul, 
responds to that. He says, well, basically, if you're rejecting me for that reason, you also are rejecting Christ. Because Christ suffered like I suffered. Christ did all the right things. He was perfectly honoring to God, and he suffered even more than I'm suffering. So suffering can't be something that's completely foreign to the Christian life. It's something that is expected. And in this passage, Paul is going to talk about this, this question of why does God allow his children to suffer? As we look at Scripture, we see a lot of things about suffering, sometimes things that are maybe make, our, make us scratch our heads. Like James, for example, tells us to count it joy when we experience suffering. James 1.3, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense. Why would we take joy in suffering? And in this passage, Paul starts off the the passage in verse 3, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the God who has allowed him to suffer, he says he's blessed, he's to be praised. And so how can Paul say that? How can James say that to count it all joy when you suffer? I mean, the scriptures have a different understanding of suffering than our world has of suffering. And so I believe that this passage provides us with some answers, maybe not all the answers, but with some answers of why God allows his children to suffer. And I think there's three points that Paul touches on in this passage. The first reason he allows his uh, children to suffer is, is that suffering allows us to experience God's comfort and qualifies us to comfort others. Suffering allows us to experience God's comfort. God declares, or Paul declares God to be the God of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And that he meets us at our point of deepest need, when we're suffering, that's when God is present the most. A lot of times people think, if, if I'm suffering, sometimes we feel like we're ab God is, is absent from us, that God is far from us. But the God that we serve is a God who's near to the brokenhearted. And when we're in our point of deepest need, that's when God shows up the most, and he comforts our heart. So I have a, a pretty close relationship with my dad, and uh, we had... Uh, really great times growing up. I remember some great trips that we went on. We went to Disney World, and uh, we went to Hawaii one time. We went to Yellowstone National Park, and I have good memories there. I remember he coached my hockey team and baseball team, and I have a lot of great memories. But the moments that I kind of learned how he felt about me or kind of where it dawned on me the most was when I was really suffering. So I was eight years old. My family was on a vacation uh, in Philadelphia. We had gone to uh, Sesame Street. It was called Sesame Place. It was a Sesame Street theme park. And when we were on our way back, you know, we were driving back home, and this car, uh, th this, uh, this sports car was driving the other direction on the throughway. The person who was driving was either high or drunk. We don't know for sure, uh, but they were going 105 miles an hour at one point, crossed over the median, hit our van, and so we were all pretty badly injured. My mom was probably the worst. She just had uh, extensive uh, injuries, her, uh, many broken appendages, many things that were wrong with her. Uh, my brother had a brain injury. My dad had a concussion and, and knee, knee issues from it. Um, I had part of my large intestine removed. And so me, I, I was in, in one hospital, and my parents were in another hospital. And somehow my dad was kind of, he was, he's, you know, had this, brain injury, a severe concussion, and somehow he talked them into letting him go from the hospital. 
So he leaves from the hospital, gets a taxi, and somehow he ended up at our hospital where me and my brother were at. And I just remember he just comforted me. You know, when I would wake up in the night and I was scared, he would tell me it's going to be okay. I had to walk, and you know, I had you know surgery, I had staples in my stomach, and it was really painful to walk, and he would carry me around the hospital, helping me to walk, and encouraged me, just keep going, keep going. He'd tell me, oh, if you walk around the, ho- you know, the, the, the floor of the hospital three times, then you, know, you get this prize. You know, he'd sit with me while I was playing video games. Now, again, I would never wish something like this on anyone. I wouldn't want something like this to happen. But in those moments, I learned a lot about my dad and how he felt about me. More so than when we were going to Disney World and having a good time. It was in those moments of suffering when he comforted me that I really knew how he felt about me. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. When we're suffering, that's when we really feel God's presence or when we should feel God's comfort. There's a survey that was done uh, after the hur- or, um, tornadoes that stroke, uh, struck Oklahoma in May 2013. Uh, Lifeway con- Research completed this survey about suffering and faith in God. People were asked the question, how do you feel about God when suffering occurs that seems unfair? 33% of people said, I trust God more. 25% said, I'm confused about God. 16%, I don't think about God in these circumstances. 11% said, I wonder if God cares. And 8% said, I'm angry or resentful at God. And 7% said, I doubt God exists. So when thinking about that question about things that don't make sense, I would expect that there would be more people that would say, where is God or does God care? But the highest number of people said, I trust God more when I'm experiencing suffering that doesn't make sense. And that's what we're meant to do when we're experiencing suffering that doesn't make sense and we're dealing with that kind of mystery, we're to draw close to God. And when we do so, we get his comfort. We get his peace that only he can give. Nobody else can give us the peace that he can give. And so we draw close to God in the midst of our suffering, and he comforts us in a way that nothing or no one else can. And then in turn, we can comfort other people. You know, when other people are maybe dealing with something similar, we can say, I've been through that. I've walked through that valley. And guess what? God is faithful. Guess what? God is going to be with you no matter what you face. God will be enough for you. See, helping other people requires an education or schooling. If you were going to become a doctor, you'd have to go to medical school and then get a residency and uh, get a placement. If you're going to be a dentist, you'd have to go to dental school. If you're going to be an accountant, you'd have to go to school and then take a, a CPA test. No matter what you're doing, if you're trying to help someone else, you have to be educated or qualified to do that. And for the, for the believer in Christ, suffering is that education. Suffering is that qualification. Let's say you're facing the prospect of a pretty scary surgery. Let's say you're having a brain surgery. Now, who would be most comforting to you? A doctor who has done it several times before, done the surgery several times before, but he, he's never experienced it himself. He can describe to you exactly what he's going to do to you. He can describe the instruments, the scalpel. He can describe what he's going to cut, what he's going to, how he's going to fix everything up. So you could listen to that person. You could listen to a friend who looked up what, the surgery on Wikipedia. 
and can tell you exactly what's going to happen, exactly what you're going to experience after the surgery. Or you could talk to a friend who's had that same exact surgery, knows exactly what it's like, knows the fear of what it's like to kind of be anxious about that surgery, knows exactly what physical things are going to happen after that surgery. And they can tell you, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you can expect. And, and, and I got through it, and, and you're going to get through it too. I mean, that's a different perspective that only experience or suffering can give us. And the same thing is true for those of us who are believers. When we experience something difficult, it qualifies us to be a comfort to those around us. Oswald Chambers once said this, If you're going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in his hands. God brings us through things sometimes so that we can be useful in his hands, so that we can experience the comfort of God and be a comfort to others. Sometimes, you know, when we're experiencing suffering, you know, we're just focused on ourselves. Like, how does this affect me? How does this impact how I live my life? But it's really more than that. God allows things in our life sometimes that are, it's not just about us. It's about how does our lives impact other people? And how is God preparing us to comfort someone else who's maybe even in a worse situation than we are? Maybe who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't have that hope. And so suffering allows us to experience God's comfort and it allows us to comfort others. It qualifies us to do that. The second thing that suffering does is suffering can produce a deep dependence upon God. As human beings, we like to be in control of our circumstances. We like to be in control of our life. We all do. Some people take this to astronomical extremes. For example, there's a company called Oliver's Travels. It's kind of a luxury travel company. And they boast this service that they can influence the weather, weather for your special day. So if you're having a, your wedding day or a special graduation or whatever the case may be, they say they can actually influence the weather to assure that you're going to have uh, no clouds in the sky and a sunny day where you have your wedding. It's called a cloud bursting service. It starts at $150,000 and they start weeks ahead of time and then they go and, and, and inject iodine into the cloud so that the cloud seeds and then uh, the rain falls down and it disappears by your special day. It's only $150,000. I mean, that's kind of an extreme, but we all like to have control of our lives. You think about it, and several years ago, you know, think 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted fast food, you had a few options. You had like a hamburger, a hot dog, chicken sandwich, maybe a fish sandwich. Now you can go to places like Moe's or Chipotle or Blaze or Subway, and you can literally get thousands and thousands of different combinations of things that you might want. But we like to be in control. You know, and it kind of inf when it comes to spiritual things, we're really not in control. You know, we can tell ourselves we're in control. We can tell ourselves that we have control of our lives, but we don't even have control over whether we make it home safely today or that we make it home alive. James 4, 13 to 16 says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We like to tell ourselves that we're in control. And when things are going really well, we can often convince ourselves that we are in control. But when something happens that is really bad, we get that cancer diagnosis or our marriage is dissolving or a loved one is sick, we just realize how far out of control we really are. In those moments, we can either sulk and and kind of go into kind of destructive tendencies to make ourselves feel better, or we can turn to the one who is in control and trust that he has a plan and trust that he'll be with us no matter what we face. And in the passage that we're looking at today, it seems that Paul found himself, Paul and his companion found himself in such a situation where they were trying to rely on their own strength. And that's often our first response when we face a trial. Rather than give it over to God, we try to fix it in our own strength. Look what it says in verse 8 to 9. It says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He says we were burdened beyond our strength. They were at the end of the rope. They didn't know where to turn. They felt like this was the end for them. And that's what happens when we sometimes experience extreme suffering. We feel like we're at the end. We try to fix it in our own strength. We realize we don't have control, and sometimes we can turn hopeless. And yet Paul describes that this was just simply to lead him into closer dependence upon God. He said, but that was to make us to not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, we were burdened, we were trying to fix it ourselves, but that was to make us realize that we couldn't do it ourselves, that we needed to trust in God. Because suffering, deep suffering, can produce deep dependence upon God. And the thing is, God delights in our dependence upon him. There's a story Dane Orland tells about a doctor who went to a remote village, and uh, the village was just ravaged by illness, and uh, at great expense to himself, he decided he was going to come and help these villagers. So he rented out a plane, he got all the medical supplies, the antibiotics, all the things that were needed to, to make these people better, and he goes there, nobody will take the medicine. They try to fix it themselves, they uh, kind of, they go after these herbal remedies. They think if they maybe dip in the water a certain number of times, then their illness will be healed. And the doctor's like, here, you have a, ha- have a disease. These antibiotics will fix the issue you're experiencing. They don't listen. Finally, a few brave young men at the end of their rope step forward to receive the care that was offered to them. What does the doctor feel after that? He feels joy. Joy that he could help those in need. In our culture, we kind of eschew dependence. Independence is, is this value that is like paramount for us. And someone who's dependent, it's, it's not good. But in God's reality, in spiritual realm, dependence is what God longs for. Because we're all really dependent upon him. We're just the next phone call away from disaster, each and every one of us. But God is in control. God will walk through with us through whatever we might face. Psychologist Samuel uh, Southard shares a prayer that he prayed with a 
um, administrator at a, at a church in West Hollywood who was dying. It's called the Pebble Prayer. And I think this prayer kind of exemplifies the heart of, of dependence that we should have when we're experiencing suffering. It says, Dear Jesus, I feel like a pebble on the beach, washed in and out by waves of pain and relief, fatigue and rest, fitful sleep and alertness. What am I supposed to do about this? I want to maintain some control of my life. I need some anchor, some mooring. So much is breaking loose. Let's plan together. I'll live with this sloshing back and forth if you'll keep some deep ballast in me so I don't flip over. You be the anchor within that holds me fast to you. Then I'll be upright even when I must flow in and out of consciousness, rock to and fro with pain. You're the solid foundation that keeps me from panic when I lose a grip on myself. So this is where I am right now. My outer security is wasting away, but my internal security is more reliable as, my fi as I fix my heart and mind upon you. Amen. Suffering can produce deep dependence when we allow it to, when we draw close to God in our time of deepest need. Final thing suffering can do is suffering can give others an opportunity to trust in God. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of, of many. So Paul is suffering. He's suffering much more than the Corinthians or, uh, frankly, most of the other believers at this time. And Paul says, you have a part to play. Even though I'm the one that's in prison, even though I'm the one that's experiencing this persecution, you have a part to play. You need to be praying for me. And as, he, as, as they pray for him, he says, you're going to get to see how God works. See, when one believer suffers, all of us suffer. And, and you know, if you're on kind of the, the top of the mountaintop now and you're not suffering at all, you still have a responsibility. Pray for the one around you who's suffering. We're all in this together. And sometimes we just kind of live lives in isolation, but that was never the way God intended it for it to be. And so Paul says, even though you're not suffering now, pray for me. Be involved in my struggle. Lift up your request to God. And then when God delivers me, which I know that he is going to, then you're going to get to see that answer to prayer. You're going to see God move and God works in ways that you could never imagine. And so when we suffer, it gives the, uh, the, the, the community of faith an opportunity to kind of gather around us, to lift us up in prayer. And as God works in our life and sustains us, whether he changes our circumstance or not, but as he sustains us and strengthens us, the people around us get to see the efforts of prayer and see God work in our life. Get to share in our joy. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India who suffered enormously in her life, wrote these words. She said, I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one who is in pain, there's rarely much power to help. I have wondered if it can be the same thing in the sphere of prayer. Does pain accepted and endured give some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer? What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat nearer some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times yes, she says. And surely it must be so, for the future we are drawn into the fellowship of Calvary 
with our dear Lord. For, for the further we're drawn into the fellowship of Calvary with our dear Lord, the more tender we are towards others. God never wastes his children's pain. When someone is suffering, it gives the church an opportunity to trust in God for that person's life, to pray, and then to see God act, and to, to share in their joy. So we think about this topic of suffering. There's a few different reasons that Paul gives why believers might suffer. Certainly not a comprehensive list. But we think about this idea of suffering, and I think J.I. Packer said something very simple but very profound. He defines suffering this way. He says, suffering is getting what you don't want and not getting what you do want. Suffering is, not getting, uh, is getting what you don't want and not getting what you do want. Suffering is getting what you don't want. Depression, cancer, disability, divorce. Not getting what you do want. Financial security, health, great relationships. And we think about these things, and if that's the heart of what suffering is, not getting the things that we want and getting the things that we don't want, you think about the kind of the worldly way of dealing with that is trying to fix the problem. If I'm suffering, we have to remove that suffering from our lives. The Christian approach is a little bit different. Now, as believers, none of us want to suffer. We don't seek out suffering, and if we can avoid suffering, of course we're going to avoid suffering. We don't seek it out. But for the Christian, we can deal with that ambiguity. For the Christian, we can deal with that mystery of suffering. We don't have to fix it. We'd like to. We hope to. We don't have to fix it. We realize that sometimes maybe God has something in store for us that maybe we don't want, but maybe it's for our good. Simone Weil, a philosopher, once said this, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. We're not necessarily always seeking a supernatural remedy. I mean, we pray for healing. We pray for change of circumstances. But even if that doesn't come, we believe that God can use our darkest moments for good. He can use anything in our life for good in his hand. In November of 1803, uh, there were reports circulating uh, about sightings in the Hammersmith District in West London of a ghost. This rumor got around that there was this ghost uh, that was kind of inhabiting the region because uh, uh, they believed it was because this person had committed suicide and they were buried on the church grounds. And they had this belief that if someone who committed suicide was buried on church grounds, that their soul wouldn't find rest. And so they believed that this ghost was haunting the village. They described him as a man who was tall, wore white clothing. Some people even added that he had horns or that he had glass eyes. People described seeing him, some even be, being terrorized by him. Panic and hysteria broke out through West London. People started to patrol the area with weapons, just in case this ghost showed up. The night of January 3rd, 1804, uh, one of these armed Smith, uh, citizens named Francis Smith saw this man who was fitting that description. He was wearing a... Uh, all white clothing, wearing an apron, looked like a ghost. 
thing was, he wasn't a ghost, he was a bricklayer, and he was wearing the common garb for bricklayers, which was white pants, white shirt, and an apron. Francis Smith went up and shot him in the head. Instantly, of course, he died. Brought to trial, and presiding judge instructed the jury that establishing malice wasn't necessary for conviction, and they convicted him of murder. First, he was sentenced to death, but his sentence was later commuted to a year's hard labor. As it turned out, there was no ghost. Later emerged that there was an elderly local shoemaker who was kind of playing a prank on his apprentice, wanted to scare him a little bit, so was kind of dressing up as a ghost. There's no ghost. It was all misperception, misinformation, illusion. It was people's response to what happened that was the problem. It was the fact that a guy was walking around with a gun and shot somebody in the head who was just coming home from work. I think when we experience suffering, sometimes it's like that experiencing of, of thinking about a ghost, something that's menacing, unusual, mysterious. And it's not so much the fact that suffering happens, it's what we do with that suffering. Because suffering in the hands of Almighty God can be used for profound good. Even though it seems senseless in the moment, even though we don't understand it, God can use it for good. Sometimes we just we view it as menacing, view it as something that's going to destroy us. But the truth is what we always what we want sometimes isn't what we need. And sometimes in God's providence, the things that we don't want. He allows us allows to happen in our life. As believers, we trust in his sovereign good control, even when we don't understand it. Suffering allows us to experience God's comfort. It qualifies us to comfort those around us. Suffering, if we allow it to, can draw us closer to God, produce a deep dependence in our hearts. And suffering can give others an opportunity to trust God as they pray for us and walk with us through times of suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. That even when we don't understand why you allow certain things to happen, we trust in your sovereignty and trust that you have some plan. That you can bring some good even out of incredible evil. We don't know why you allow some things to happen. We know that you are not the author of evil. You don't cause evil to happen. Sometimes you allow it. We don't understand that sometimes. But as your children, we trust that you care about us. Seeing the cross and your love for us, we know that you're working for our good and for your glory. As we walk through suffering, times of suffering, we know that none of us are immune from suffering, that we are promised of one thing, that we will suffer. As we experience times of suffering in this fallen world, help us to draw close to you, knowing that you're there with us, knowing that you'll provide comfort that no one else can knowing that you can use the worst moments of our life for your glory. Lord, we love you. Help us to trust you, even when things don't make sense. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.